Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for May 2011. I'm Jay Suarez, Managing Editor for the Journal. This month, we highlight 14 research papers. This includes a paper by Takeharu Nagai's group that provides an exciting new method for functional analysis of proteins in living cells. Research from the lab of Suzanne Walker characterizes transporters of wall ticoic acids. A study spearheaded by Michael Burkhardt provides insight into the mechanism of an enzyme that could prove valuable in designing novel compounds. Dirk Schwarzer and colleagues offer a new set of tools for profiling a class of proteins implicated in human diseases. Motonari Yusugi reports an innovative screening method for compounds that target the cellular cytoskeleton. Research directed by John Williams, David Horn, and Richard Jove identify a novel site for anti-cancer drug development. Work from Peter Fromher's lab reports a method for membrane targeting. Craig Lindsley's group offers two new assays which identified compounds with significant implications on treating metastatic colon cancer. The lab of Manuela Pereira provides important mechanistic insight on energy transduction. Scott Banta reports a novel platform for generating peptides for drug delivery applications. And Damien Kreisen and colleagues describe the identification of novel antifungal compounds. We'll also be talking to three of our authors later in the podcast, but now we'd like to highlight some interesting content you will find only on our website. To learn more about our authors of the manuscripts in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors section on the web. This month, we feature nine young scientists, Bonnie Baxter, Renzo Corzano, Shan Gao, Stamateus Leocadis, Catherine Scherner, Jessica Slack, Sydney Stoops, Kiwamu Takemoto, and Memang Zhang. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We are now joined by Yan Zhang at the University of Texas, Austin, author of the recent paper, Selective Inactivation of a Human Neuronal Silencing Phosphatase by a Small Molecule Inhibitor. Hi, Yan. Hi. Your manuscript published in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology discusses the inhibition of a newly discovered class of phosphatases, the human small C-terminal domain phosphatase. Could you tell us a little bit about the role of these enzymes in a cell? Yes. These female enzymes, we call them SCPs, are neuronal silencing proteins that are found in organisms with neuronal system. SCPs can be phosphorylate RNA polymerase to the most important transcriptional machinery in our cells. Since the phosphorylation of RNA polymerase 2 is tightly regulated throughout transcription process, the change of activity of this protein can result in different fate of transcription. For SCP, it turns off the expression of neuronal genes. It has been shown that SCP physically bind to neuronal silencing complex called REST complex. So if we can inactivate its activity, neuronal gene expression will be unleashed and neuron regeneration might occur. Phosphatases are traditionally a difficult family to design inhibitors against. What makes this enzyme an especially good target? Well, phosphatases usually are very difficult for inhibitor design because they tend to have poor selectivity. 
the active site of phosphatase are too similar to be distinguished by small chemical compounds. But when we studied the active site of SCP, we realized that there is a possibility that selective SCP inhibitors can be found. The reason is twofold. First, we realized that the enzyme mechanism of SCP is quite different from the traditional cysteine-based phosphatase like tyrosine phosphatase. So the recognition of substrate is different and can be differentiated from the tyrosine phosphatase. Secondly, but most importantly, in our structure study, we identified a hydrophobic pocket unique to SCP. It's very close to the reaction center, and the recognition of physical substrate is shown to be dominated by this hydrophobic pocket. So we reasoned that by targeting this hydrophobic pocket, we should be able to identify compounds that selectively inhibit SCP. Okay, so you did find that inhibitor, rabiprazole. How specific is it? Rabiprazole turns out to be highly specific because the hydrophobic pocket it targets is only found in SCP. The high selectivity is essential for the feasibility of SCP inhibitor search because enzymes that resemble SCP, I'll say cousins of SCP, are essential enzymes like FCP whose deletion will cause cell death, and the human diet, which is an important phosphatase for neuronal tube formation. So if there is leaking inhibition happened with SCP inhibitors that abolish the activity of those enzymes, the fate for cells will be devastating. When we test the cross-inhibition for other homolog enzymes, as we hoped, there is no cross-inhibition at all for FCP or DALAD, which is those little rewarding and euphoric moment you feel as a scientist when things work really well and uh, that's exactly the case we hope it will be. We also test rabiprazole against other phosphatase like lambda phosphatase, and we didn't observe any inhibition for those phosphatases either. Oh, that's very interesting. So could you briefly describe for us the significance of identifying this inhibitor to our audience? Yeah, I think, first of all, our study established that SCP is a feasible target. Extensive studies have been done on tyrosine phosphatase, but breakthrough for the potent and the selective inhibitor for tyrosine phosphatase is only reported recently by Zhongying Zhang's lab in Indiana University. Our study opens to this new alley of research as a new selective target for SCP. And SCP is a novel enzyme family which uses totally different enzyme mechanism from the cysteine-based tyrosine phosphatase. Second, SCP itself is a very important protein that functions as a break for neuronal gene expression. By selectively inhibit SCP, we are opening doors to control neuronal gene expression and the neuron regeneration. The high selectivity of rabiprazole makes it a great lead compound, which we will develop, hopefully, eventually, to some drugs that can direct neuronal differentiation and help patients with disease such as Alzheimer's. That sounds great, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. We move on to our next author, Ernst Schonbrunn, at the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute in Tampa, Florida, author of the recent manuscript, Discovery of a Potential Allosteric Ligand Binding Site in CDK2. Hi, Ernst. Hi. In your manuscript published in ACS Chemical Biology, you describe the identification of an allosteric binding site for a specific cyclin-dependent kinase. What is the function of these kinases? Cyclin-dependent kinases are critical for cellular function. They phosphorylate diverse protein substrates, 
and uh, regulate vital steps in the progression through the cell cycle, transcription, mRNA splicing, and many other cellular functions. There are a total of, right now, 13 different cycle-independent kinases. They all have a pretty similar uh, structure. They are all uh, around 300 amino acids in length. And all of them critically depend on interaction with their partner proteins. And these partner proteins are cyclins. And of cyclins, there are also numerous cyclins known. Here in my work, we worked with cyclin A2. Another important cyclin for CDK2 is cyclin E. And it is known that CDK2 also interacts with cyclin B. Okay, so prior to your study, what was the favored site of inhibition for this class of enzyme? The favorite site, or I probably should say the only site known for any CDK to be uh, inhibited is the ATP site. So all protein kinases, of course, depend on ATP. And for all cycle-independent kinases, inhibitors target this ATP site. Could you briefly describe for us then your approach to discovering this new allosteric site? So what we did was we used a well-known extrinsic fluorophore, anilino-laftalene sulfonate, ANS. ANS has very valuable properties for biochemical studies. It has very low fluorescence yield in aqueous solutions, but once it binds to proteins, the fluorescence yield dramatically increases, and that allows you to conformational studies on the conformational changes of enzymes, for example. So we used ANS to see if ANS would interact with CDK2, and we found a very unusually high signal, which suggested that there is a specific binding site for ANS in CDK2. And we used free CDK2 in that experiment. So the next step then was to see if ANS can be displaced from CDK2 through interaction with the cyclin, and that seemed to be the case. So a titration of cyclin into that CDK2 ANS complex quenched the fluorescence signal. That was a very strong indication that ANS binds in a region which is close to the interface between CDK2 and cyclin. And then what we did next was to determine the uh, structure, the three-dimensional crystal structure of CDK2 liganded with ANS, and we found two ANS molecules bound adjacent to the ATP site. Okay, so do you have any prospective compounds on the horizon that target this allosteric site? What we have done is, uh, and we have described in the paper, we have utilized the interaction of ANS with CDK2 to design a assay suitable for the high-throughput screening of compounds which are able to uh, displace ANS. And we have just recently started a uh, high-throughput screening campaign in-house here at Moffitt. But so far, we have only screened some 5,000 compounds. We have found some promising candidates. And the next step now is to co-crystallize these new compounds with CDK2 to see if they indeed bind to that ANS pocket. Okay, good luck with characterizing those compounds, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. We move on to our final author for today, Paul Thompson from the Scripps Research Institute, author of the recent manuscript, Development and Use of Clickable Activity-Based Protein Profiling Agents for Protein Arginine Deaminase 4. Hi, Paul. Hi. So your manuscript published in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology focuses on protein arginine deaminases. What reaction does this enzyme catalyze? So it might be easier if we just call them PADs. 
and they convert arginine residues and proteins to citrulline. And so you go from a positively charged residue to a neutral residue, and you can imagine that that would have dramatic effects on protein-protein interactions and eukaryotic signaling. Okay, so why the interest in developing activity-based probes for these PAD enzymes? I guess so on two levels. One, the activity of the PADs, and in particular PAD4, is upregulated in a variety of different diseases like colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, cancer, lupus. And so they actually look to be really excellent drug targets for all of these diseases. We've actually recently shown that inhibitors, which form the basis of our activity-based probe, show efficacy in most models of colitis and rheumatoid arthritis. And so one of the key issues about these enzymes is that we really don't have a good understanding of what they do normally in the cells. And so if we're going to truly validate them as drug targets, not just showing that we can see efficacy with compounds, but understanding what they do and what inhibiting them might do badly to a cell, that's really our motivation for developing these compounds. So we can understand what they interact with, how they're regulated, and what processes they're involved in. Okay, so could you briefly describe for us then the design synthesis and evaluation of these activity-based probes? Sure. So several years ago now, we originally described the synthesis of a mechanism-based inactivator for the targets pad for as well as the other pads. And the basis of the design is to take a benzylated arginine derivative called benzylarginine amide and replace the guanidinium group with a haloacid amidine moiety. And what that is is essentially you've replaced one of the NH2 groups on the guanidinium with the methyl halide or a methyl fluoride or a methyl chloride. And those compounds react with an active site cysteine on the enzyme to irreversibly inactivate it. So what we essentially did was we appended off of the benzyl group with either an azide or an alkyne to click on fluorescine and a biotin probe, and we're able to use the compounds to label the protein in cells. And because we can do the click chemistry, we can really add our compounds to cells, let them get into the cells, and then click on the reporter tags after the fact, after we do cell lysis, and really we're labeling the protein in the endogenous state. Okay, so in this study, did you apply these probes then to studying PAD4 in live cells? Yeah, we did. So the best compound we showed has a sort of simple moiety with a simple benzyl arginine amide analog with the alkyne coming off the benzyl group. We were able to add that to cells and then lyse them, click onto the probe, and then we were able to show that we could use the probes to identify several interacting proteins like P53, HDAC1, and histone H3. And we've also showed that the protein looks to be proteolized in the cell and that probably the active form of the enzyme is missing a portion of its end terminus. Subsequently, we just published a paper in biochemistry where we actually use the probes to identify sites of autodeamination in the protein. And so that paper should be coming out shortly in a very similar stage. All right. Well, that's great. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We continue to describe chem-bioglossary terms on the air. This month's key term is isosome, which comprises any large protein assembly at the plasma membrane that indicates the site of endocytosis. For more information on the isosome, please refer to the article by Damien Crisson's lab in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology. 
That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening. <laughs>